Hello and welcome again to Evangelize Me and our continuing study of First Thessalonians. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 3. I'm glad that you're joining us. But first, before we begin, we want to review why we're doing this and remember uh, our goals. And uh, the first one is to gain a deep, practical understanding of the scriptures, to learn how to study the scriptures by asking questions and, and looking at the sentences and structures involved, uh, to learn practical ways of applying the scriptures uh, to our daily lives, that we're not just reading this as a historical document, but we're learning the principles involved and applying them. And finally, we want to be able to hear what the Lord is saying to each one of us through these scriptures. And before we begin, one of the things that I said at the beginning is that, uh, you know, it's important to approach the scriptures with an open heart, and it's important to approach the scriptures uh, knowing that we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And, and so uh, I, I realize that I've been neglectful of uh, role modeling this for you in uh, asking the Lord to help us as we study the scriptures. So why don't we begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we just lift up our hearts to you and ask that you would help us to be able to hear your voice through your word. As we read through this chapter, we want to encounter you, and we want to be transformed into the image of your Son. And so, Lord, we commit this time into your hands and ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, chapter 3 begins with, uh, with this sentence. It says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy. Now, remember, when we started this study, we talked about the chapters not being inspired, right? The, the chapters and the verse numbers were added later on, right? The, the words of the scriptures themselves are inspired. They're in the infallible word of God to us. Uh, and so when you start this chapter, you know, if you read chapter 2 last week and now you're reading chapter 3, if you see this word, therefore, you have to ask, what is that therefore, therefore, right? Uh, and it's referring, Paul it doesn't have any disconnection of thought. It's not like he wrote chapter 2 one week and wrote chapter 3 the next week. This is all just one, uh, one thought for him. And so Paul is obviously connecting whatever he's going to say in chapter 3 to everything else that has gone before it, especially that which is right before it. And if you remember last week in, in, the, in chapter 2 and also in chapter 1, he's been reviewing his relationship with uh, the Thessalonians, how he came to them from Philippi, how they received the gospel with great grace, and uh, that he, the way he behaved around them, how, the way he preached and the motivation that he had, and his great love for them. And, of course, right before this, he's talking about the great concern that he had, that perhaps they had, uh, uh, because of persecution, had, had lost their faith or been weakened in their faith. And his great desire to come and see them, and how he had been hindered from doing that. <clears throat> and so he begins chapter 3, same, same thought, right? Uh, he, he says, you know, we wanted to come to you and we couldn't. So therefore, when we could bear it, no longer, which is quite a statement, right? When you say that you can't take it anymore. So Paul, Paul was experiencing uh, quite a bit of stress and fear or anxiety around the, the Thessalonians because of his great love for them and his concern about the state that they were in, in in the midst of their persecution. And so he says, we were willing to be left behind. Uh, and so sending Timothy away was a, 
you know, was, was a sacrifice for Paul. Obviously, he wanted Timothy with him, but he sends Timothy. And it's interesting how he describes Timothy in this verse. He says, we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's servant. Now, it's interesting because brother, you know, we use that word sometimes. We throw it around like, hey, brother, you know, uh, or sister. And, and, uh, and yet, I think this is kind of a new... Um, a new expression of this idea of the family of God, right? And that, that Paul saw Timothy as his brother in the Lord, as this, it's a relational, it's a family relationship that he's emphasizing here. And then he says, he's God's servant in the gospel of Christ. You notice that he's not Paul's servant, right? He's not just, he's not uh, just, you know, like this, like follow Paul around and do whatever Paul tells him, but that, that, that Paul is uh, establishing that Timothy is a servant of God. He responds to the dictates and the, uh, the um, leading of the Holy Spirit for himself. And so this idea that, <clears throat> that uh, we are called to be servants, we are called to, to wait upon the Lord and to follow his instructions. This word servant is, is actually the Greek word that we get uh, the word deacon from. Uh, and remember when the first the, the idea of deacons appears in the New Testament, it's uh, the apostles said uh, we should be praying and preaching the word, and and we don't we can we don't have time to be uh, waiting on tables is how they say it, and so they appoint deacons, and the idea of a deacon is like they're they're doing this practical work, they're doing whatever needs to be done in the establishment of the gospel, <laughs> and so this idea that uh, that we're all called to be servants. In, in a sense, we're all called to be deacons. We're called to a ministry of service to the Lord. <clears throat> and so he sends Timothy, and the first thing he sends Timothy for is to establish you in your faith, right? To strengthen your faith, to, to make the faith more um, established, more firm, right? Uh, and then it says, and to exhort you that no one be moved by these afflictions. So, so he's coming to establish the faith and to exhort them, to encourage them, to uh, challenge them that no one should be uh, have their faith moved or diminished because of what they were going through. So <clears throat> Paul says, For you yourselves know that this is to be our lot. Now I want to stop there. Because it's, it's like what Paul is saying here is he, he expects persecution to be part of our faith, right? He's ex, his expectation is that if, uh, uh, if, if you have faith in Jesus Christ and you're trying to live according to his principles in your life, that you will encounter persecution. Uh, it's the same idea that Jesus expresses when he says, you know, the, um, uh, the servants aren't above the master, that if the master is going to get arrested and crucified, then the followers will also. And, and what's interesting here is that it says, For when we were with you, we told you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. So this is part of Paul's preaching. 
right? It's kind of interesting because you can see just in these first three chapters, this is, again, you know, 20 years after the, the resurrection of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ. And so you really, we have a, like this little window of like, what was it like to preach the gospel at the very beginning? And what was being preached? And of course, uh, we have an emphasis here on the Father, right? He, how many times has he mentioned the Father in these three chapters in this revelation that God uh, has adopted us into his family and made us his children because he loves us? Uh, an emphasis on Jesus dying and rising from the dead. Uh, that's really important that we know that that is a, a historical reality, that we have eyewitness accounts that over 500 people saw Jesus rise from the dead, that this isn't uh, uh, some kind of mystical event that nobody ever heard of, that Paul is making up as he goes along. He didn't go into a cave and get a, uh, you know, a revelation or meet an angel and God told him all about this. He actually, you know, I mean, people actually knew Christ and heard him preach and saw him die and saw him after he rose from the dead, right? No other religious leader ever rose from the dead. That's what establishes him as the Messiah, as the Son of God. It's perfectly reasonable. But it, and and so he, you know, he he he's preaching all this stuff. He's preaching the fact that we need to love one another. And then, uh, obviously, part of his message was, if you believe this, you are going to suffer persecution. Now it's interesting to me that uh, in the, in Western Christianity we have all of the other things, right? We have the we have the Trinity and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we have the you know the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. And we have the need for faith and the need for love, but we don't talk about persecution very often. And I'm wondering, no, I'm not wondering. I'm pretty sure that that's something we need to be preparing for. <laughs> I think it's something we need to be preparing other people for. I think it actually needs to become part of our message of Christianity. And, and that's not a bad thing, because the truth is that every time the church has been persecuted, it's actually been a very productive time, a very uh, fruitful time for the church. And all you have to do is uh, look at uh, some of the changes that are going on. I just, even this morning, read about some legislation that is in Congress uh, in these next couple of weeks and, and, and the profound uh, change it could make to our society. And, um, and so this idea about you know, persecution it seems very foreign to us as Westerners. And yet, it's a very integral part of Paul's preaching of the gospel. And uh, I think it needs to be for us, too. And so he says, uh, that was, you know, I, I told you that we would suffer this. It's kind of like, you know, Peter does the same thing when he's writing his letter. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that you're enduring, right? And, and if you look at uh, Paul when in, in the book of Acts on his uh, missionary journey, his first missionary journey, he establishes all these churches, and then he goes back and visits them. And it says that uh, when he goes back to visit them, he preaches that it is through much suffering that we enter the kingdom of God. You see, there's not a separation, you know, like it, uh, I think in the Western world, we think the kingdom of God is like, that's the abundant life, right? That's the the hope and peace and joy, but but we, we look at the resurrection, but we forget about the cross, right? The only way that you can experience the resurrected life is if you die, right? The seed can't produce life unless it dies. And so, um, so again, this idea, uh, it is through much suffering that we enter in to the fullness and the reality of the kingdom of God. Um, in fact, when Paul is writing to Timothy, he says, indeed, all who want to live a godly way, in a godly way, in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. 
Now, that's an interesting promise, right? We, we're used to, um, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen the little promise boxes, you know, where you have a little, all of God's promises on little slips of paper, and you pull one out to, like, okay, here's the promise of the day, and it says, oh, God will never leave you or forsake you. And it's like, oh, that's such a wonderful promise, and God will use everything for good. That's such a wonderful promise. And then you pull one out and say, uh, if, if you're going to try to live in a godly way today, you will be persecuted. I mean, it's a promise, right? And it says, all. All, every single one of us, when we're living our lives the way we should be, will be uh, and will encounter some hostility, some pushback, some rejection, some uh, misunderstanding, right? Even some broken relationships, perhaps, right? This is, but this idea of like, um, it, it, this isn't supposed to be easy to proclaim the gospel in a hostile culture, right? In fact, Jesus even says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Blessed are them, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? And so that's, a, that's an important part, obviously an important part of Paul's preaching, an important part of this entire gospel message. And it says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, that's the second time he says that, I sent that I might know your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and that our labor would be in vain. So you think about, like, well, like, so Paul goes there and he preaches, and uh, they have this faith. Uh, the only way his labor could be in vain is if they had decided to, to give up their faith, right? If their faith somehow got shipwrecked in that. If they decided, hey, listen, uh, nobody ever arrested me or took my house or beat me when I was worshiping idols, and so I'm just going to go back to that because that's a whole lot easier, right? Um, and but it, But the interesting thing here for me, is that this, uh, Paul sees this as an opportunity for Satan to tempt us. Which gives us some insight about this persecution thing, right? That when we're suffering, and not just in persecution, but all the suffering that we, I think all the suffering we encounter in our lives are part of bringing us into the kingdom. It's all about conforming us to his image. It's about us uh, being confronted with our shame and with our woundedness. It's about us uh, surrendering our pride, surrendering our own agenda, that whole process that he brings us through and we're suffering and are open to the work of the Holy Spirit. But Paul is also acknowledging when you're suffering, that's the time when, uh, when the enemy is going to tempt you. Um, and, and of course, uh, you know, there's a scripture that talks about, you know, not being ignorant of the wiles of the enemy. And so this is, a, this is Paul giving us this little insight, right? He's, he's saying, listen, when you're going through something, when you're suffering, especially if you're being persecuted, then that is a time. Uh, when you're going to be tempted. That's a time when Satan's going to whisper in your ear, hey, listen, this Christianity stuff's not really worth it, right? <laughs> this trying to love people, this trying to forgive people, this trying to, you know, be the best person you can be, it's never going to work, why are you bothering, right? <clears throat> and that is uh, an important thing for us to recognize, that uh, this is a battle, and that we have a real enemy who's trying to destroy our faith. Right. All right. He says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love. And so when Timothy comes back, he's full of good news. He's like, oh, my gosh, the Thessalonians are doing awesome. Um, and they're full of faith and love. And so the news doesn't end there. It says, he also reported that you always remember us kindly 
and long to see us as we long to see you. And so Paul is completely reassured about their faith and their love and also about their relationship, the relationship that he shares with them, that, uh, that they love him and miss him as much as he loves them and misses them. And he says, for, the, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. And now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. It's, uh, it's, standing fast in the Lord is a phrase that Paul uses sometimes. In fact, when he's uh, writing to the Ephesians, uh, when uh, he's talking about spiritual warfare and putting on the armor of God, he says, therefore, stand. Right? And this idea of, um, of, of not uh, collapsing in, in the midst of battle, but to stand strong in your faith. And so Paul is greatly comforted, he's greatly encouraged. He says, uh, For what thanksgiving can we render to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, praying earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and to supply what is lacking in your faith. That uh, reminds me of Psalm 116 where uh, the psalmist says, What shall I render to God for all of the benefits that he has bestowed upon me? I will lift up the cup of salvation, right? And, um, and, and so Paul is saying, like, he's overflowing with this desire to thank God for this wonderful news that he's received. And he continues to pray earnestly that he can see them face to face uh, to supply what is lacking. That's interesting, right? Because he wants to make sure that they have everything they need so that they can withstand this affliction they're going through. And so then he begins to pray. He, uh, uh, he includes this prayer at the end of this chapter. He says, Now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus direct our way to you. So the first thing he prays for is that they can, they can have a reunion and, and be able to see each other face to face. That's the first thing. The second thing he prays for is that the Lord make you increase and abound in love. Now, it's, it's interesting. If he's, if he's going to pray for them for, for anything, it's funny that he would pray. The two prayers that he prays are, you know, like, I want to you know, have the Lord make a way for me to see you, and I want to pray that you increase and abound in love. And what, what we're going to discover in going through Paul's letters is that receiving God's love, have the Holy Spirit pouring the love of God into our hearts so that we can call out to the Father and call him our dad, uh, and then being able to give that love to others. Remember when he writes the Corinthians, he says there's no nothing greater than love, right? And he's talking about all the spiritual gifts, that you could, gifts of healing and prophecy and all of those things. And he says, but the greatest of them is love. Right? These three remain faith, hope, and love, and the greatest is love. He always has this emphasis on love and loving one another. That we are have, to have our hearts full of love and overflowing with love. And, and you notice it says, to one another and to all men. That it's, uh, he encourages us to love the people in the church, the people that we see and the people that we relate to uh, in, in terms of uh, our faith. But it's to everyone. It's not just like I love people who agree with me. I love every single person. 
and, and abounding, increasing and abounding in love. Obviously, when Paul's praying that through the Holy Spirit and these inspired scriptures, he's saying this should be our goal, right? This should be the prayer. This is a prayer that I should pray for myself. Lord, help me to increase and abound in love towards one another, towards the people that I, you know, my family and my friends and the people that I go to church with, and to all people. Even those people, perhaps, that I disagree with, right? Or the people that I, I don't agree with their lifestyles, or I don't agree with their choices, or I don't agree with their politics. I don't, you know, like, whatever it is, what, you know, those irritating people that pull out in front of me on the, in the you know, on the road, you know, all, like, all people. <laughs> being able to love them, being able to love each and every person. As Paul says, as we do to you. <clears throat> Now, it's interesting that that verse continues with a, so that, right? So, so Paul is saying, I want the Lord to make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all men, so that, you see the connection there, right? One follows the other, one is connected to the others, that he may establish your hearts in holiness, before our God and Father. So if we stop there and just think about it, like what does that mean to be, uh, have your heart established unblameable in holiness? Remember in chapter 2, Paul went to a great, uh, great length to, to express his motivation for proclaiming the gospel and, and, and identifying the different motivations that uh, that he didn't have, right? He wasn't doing it out of greed. He wasn't doing it out of his own agenda. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't doing it to get honor or privilege. But he was doing it out of love for people, and uh, and so that's this idea of the purity of heart. Uh, a lot of a lot of people, I think, have given up on the idea of holiness. Uh, that you know, this idea of you know, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect, and and it's like, well, we're never going to be that perfect, so why even bother trying? Uh, and and the idea, of course, is that as we share in God's life, which is like literally what we do through the sacraments, we, we're sharing in the life of the Trinity that we become more and more like God himself. And, and, and you notice, there's this connection here, so that, it's like we're abounding in love, so that our hearts, if our hearts are full of love, then they're going to be unblameable in holiness before the Father. And and you, and then he says, uh, "Your hearts are unblameable in holiness before the Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus, with all His saints." Now, again, this is another piece of the uh, early proclamation of the gospel, and indeed, in the proclamation of the gospel throughout all the centuries. That, uh, but I think again, there's not an urgency to it for us. Uh, you know, we're very much a, uh, a church looking for the parousia. If you just listen to the words of Mass and, and with this ear, uh, you would hear all the way through. And, you know, we talk about until you come in glory. Uh, we, we make statements like that, that that we don't really listen to and we don't really, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think we necessarily believe that the Lord could appear in glory anytime soon. And yet, this is a really important part of this, this, this sense of urgency that the Lord could come at any moment, right? That the Lord could come at any moment for me, right? And I, I, I don't know if I'm going to be alive this afternoon. Uh, but, but, but also, he's going to come in glory to judge the living and the dead at the end of time. 
and that that is a real event that we're anticipating. In fact, uh, when you read Revelation, it's something that the church is longing for. You know, it says, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Um, uh, it's something that we look forward to, being with him and seeing him face to face uh, in our love for him and knowing his love for us. And so uh, this idea that, uh, that we would be established, we'd have uh, love uh, established in our hearts so that it's abounding, so that we would be unblameable in holiness before the Father, so that we could rejoice at the coming of the Lord with all of his saints at the end of time. What a glorious thing that's going to be, and Paul's going to talk about some more about that in, these, uh, in this letter, and also in the letter, uh, the second letter to the Thessalonians. It's actually something he talks about quite a lot in all of his letters, but we'll dig more into the second coming pretty soon. So, these are short chapters, right? You can just read them in a few minutes. And your homework is to read chapter 4. I hope that as, you're, uh, as we're going through this, as you're reading chapter 4, you anticipate some of the questions, uh, that you're noticing some of the details, the words, the structure, uh, noticing the, the therefores and the so-thats, right? So that you can make these connections and pausing to say, gee, there's two words here Paul's using to describe Timothy. That's, that might be important for me to think about that, right? Why did he use those two words and, and not other ones? And so uh, that's what I'm really hoping that you're uh, getting out of this. Uh, so read chapter 4. Uh, feel free to email me. Let me know what you're getting out of this, if you're getting anything at all, or uh, if you have questions that I haven't answered or whatever it is. And uh, in the meantime, I pray that God blesses you. Look forward to being able to be with you again soon. Thanks for joining us.